Action Park Media. Hey guys, welcome to Entertaining Her. Aaron Costello here. Hey guys, Erica Cedeno. And Sarah Sanderson. So sexy. <laughs> that's, that's the no sleep voice from Sarah, actually. That's why. Oh my God. That's I got two hours of sleep. Azula is not with us, but she will be here next week. I am really excited before we get into Katie taking us into the wind down. We just need to do a little um, update here on the sheets debate. We did a poll and Aaron is not alone in the top sheet. 30% because I did two different polls. 30% on average, do not use a top sheet. So there's a lot of you out there that also are like, no need for this and throw that out. So uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, wow. I told you guys, it's like, if you have I a duvet, checked. wash the duvet every two weeks or every week, whatever, you don't really need that top sheet. It gets in the way. So, uh, but no, I'm excited for our guest today. Should we get into the wind down? Sure. Get ready for the wind down. Victory! So, yeah, we drove to La Quinta uh, yesterday. I'm here for a little while, and uh, it was difficult. You know, I packed up two cats and a baby, and I was worried because the cats before, um, they used to not be great in the car. So I thought, oh, my gosh, she's going to be crying, and the cats will be crying. This will be a disaster. The cats were silent. She was crying if she was awake. So like half the time crying, half the time not. Um, but last night I had this brilliant idea. Okay. Before, cause you know, cats are like when they get into a new space, like they're not like dogs, like, woo, they're like freaked out. Like they got to sniff everything before they can relax. I didn't have time to have them go sniff out the house. I'm like, I'll just put them in the nursery with me. They can sleep with me. I'll sleep with the baby. It'll be fine. No, they wanted out of that room. They were meowing like all night. And surprisingly, Isabella was sleeping through it, luckily, um, but not me. So like, I've had just no sleep at all. Like my ears are ringing because I'm so tired. I don't know if you guys ever feel that where it's like it, your ears just hurt, like your eardrums, I guess. Um, and yeah, so not going to do that tonight. I'm going to have to get all the animals um, acclimated. But yeah, so we have two dogs here and two cats, a bunch of new furniture, and new carpets, which Doug's just losing it already like Baron threw up yellow bile on a new carpet. And then earlier today he was drinking coconut water and then boo knocked it over on the other new carpet. And it's just like, look, you got animals, you got a baby that's going to get ruined. Like, it's just going to happen. You just got to roll with it. Right? Like that sucks. Cause it's new, but it's going to happen unless you want to live by yourself. Then sure. You can only blame yourself if a mess happens, but like, how's that fun? You know? Sarah, Sarah, I'll give you a contact of a guy that comes and just cleans, like professionally cleans your furniture and you, your rugs every so often. So you're good. You're golden. No, I like definitely need that. Get dark, get dark stuff. Like, I mean, I don't, Erica's the crazy one in the group where she has a white couch and miraculously <laughs> it's white. Like I, like I, I went shopping with her for like fabrics on this white couch and as her best friend. I felt a complete disservice in telling her this is a bad idea. This girl, she loves her red wine. Her kids are active. They play soccer. And she yet, does not have animals though. Yeah, that's true. No, I do not. And, and guess what? So 
<clears throat> I guess I'll go next because it's Aviana's birthday. I'm a little swamped, as you know. I haven't been like chatting so much because I'm planning a birthday party that is going to happen tomorrow. Yay! And um, you guys, she is asking me for a pet, and I'm dying because <laughs> yes, I'm like, do we really need to do this? I'm not ready for a pet. First of all, I mean a puppy. Okay, so she wanted a puppy, and then she went to a bunny. And then now guess what we're down to? <laughs> Can anyone guess what she wants for a pet? No one's going to guess. Nope. Uh, not a cat. I said cats are out because of the shedding. A hamster. Do dogs shed more than cats. What do you mean? What are you well, talking we about? would get, we would get like a non-shedding dog, you a know, hamster. like a, no, a snail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Meta, Meta called me what? yesterday. She's like, so mama, I got um, Aviana something for her birthday and oh. I'm going to get her a snail. Can I get her a snail too? And I'm like, no, this was like, not, it, it wasn't like a legit conversation. She just wants that. it. Doesn't mean she How gets long it. of a life does a snail live? Like what? So the we read, we researched this, we read into it. And I think Matt said like three years or something crazy. And I'm like, wow. uh, why don't you, why don't you get her an animal, uh, an ant farm? You know how like the ant farm? Oh room? gosh, no. I they, got they, it. What if they get out? Of the exactly. House. What if you get her one of no. those beta fish? Like the they live. You only get one. I had one for three years. I named it Fishy. Really, you know, <laughs> original. Um, but they they're so easy to take care of and start with the one, oh the fish. ones that kill themselves if you put a mirror in front of it. So. <laughs> Put it right in front of no, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's terrible. No, but they, yeah. they'll kill they'll if you put two in one, they'll they'll kill the other ones. But mine totally had a little attitude. It was it was like I'd walk in and go, hi fishy, and he'd swim up to the water. And I what? mean, I think she wants something that she can hold, kind of. And mm. she loves this these snails. It's like they you can't really hold a snail. Like, what if you accidentally smush him? No, she's very careful. You can't squish it. You can't. So, I mean, okay. So what are you going to do? What are you doing? What's mom deciding? I mean, we have to have a conversation about it, obviously, like a family conversation it doesn't happen overnight. So it's not happening for the birthday. I'm sorry, Aviana, you're getting like, I don't know, clothes. Oh, <laughs> Is anyone out there, okay, wait, out. anyone no out there, have you ever had a pet snail? Is this an actual thing that people have pet snails? <laughs> part is Erica's gonna have a family sit down to discuss if they family should be getting a snail like that to me is like just all encompassing Erica to a T well we have to do research first right I think you have to read about it you have to figure out where it's gonna live I'm not just gonna bring something into the house I mean I told Matt maybe we can put the cage outside like have it kind of be like an outdoor pet <laughs> An outdoor no, pet I'm snail. Googling if people I mean, have a pet snail. Oh my God, it is a thing. Do snails make good pets? They're, they make great pets. They don't oh, need to great. be walked. They don't shed or smell. They don't Jesus. make noise. <laughs> You're just never going to look at escargot the same if you get this, FYI. Anyway. Oh, I never told you guys the story. She had oh. escargot at home at the at her school. They ate it at her school. And she was, she came home that day crying. She was so sad. She's like, I can't believe I ate a snail, mommy. She was like so sad. And ever since then, that's kind of what happened. Her addiction with snails was created. Wait, I got news for you on the lifespan uh -oh, of a snail. 10 years. <laughs> 25 years. Oh gosh, no. It's out. It says, it says, um, <laughs> if they're so left Abby, to themselves Abby's in nature, snail. 
If they're wait, left wait. to themselves in nature, it's 15 years, but in captivity, they can survive up to 25 years. Oh boy. And a wild snail is only two to five years. I so, mean, I'm going to be a grandma and this snail's going to be alive still. <laughs> oh, wow. That is a commitment. You 25 years. Now I feel so bad for all the snails that have accidentally stepped on in the rain. Like when you're walking into your house and there's just snails on the ground. I didn't know they lived that long. They're really cute. I mean, they're kind of gross, but they're cute. I was on a walk the other day and we saw one and I, we took video of it to like say happy birthday to Aviana. And it was like, I'll, I'll send you guys the video. All right. So what do you say, E-Dog? Anyways, I say that's wackadoo, but you guys, you know what? You could start a snail pet. <laughs> wackadoo. So don't uh, get it, right? I'm so bummed so I'm missing her birthday. I know. Oh, by the way, I was one. gonna ask you, I was gonna text you this, but you're so swamped. Do you want me there early? What time do you want me there? Sure. Yes. Come over early. What can I, what can I bring? Sorry, Sarah. <clears throat> Nothing. I got everything, girlfriend. I know you do. I can't wait. <laughs> her, her kids' birthday parties for people listening are way more fun for the adults. Even like that's the, that's the cool part is like, she makes it fun for both. So I mean, I it is my, it is my birth day. So technically, you know, True. I birthed her that day. So That's I, we, we have to be celebrated too, you guys, all you mamas out there. I love it. Celebrate love yourself it. too. Um, all right, well, let's get into this guest because we, you and I, E-Dog especially have been really focused and interested on the AI space, the future. What does it mean for our younger generation? What does it mean for us? So without further ado, let's get right into it. All right, you guys, beyond excited for today's guest, because you know I am nonstop talking about AI. What is the future? How does it look? How's it going to impact the entertainment industry? How's it going to impact the world of you know young people? We talk about this all the time. And I had the ability to get in front of somebody who pretty much has his finger on the pulse when it comes to the future of AI, worked uh, for Meta, but also was with Microsoft for 22 years, graduated from MIT. It was total happenstance. Met Samuel Drucker at a USC football game when I started chatting with his daughter and his wife. And now I get him on the podcast. I cannot, uh, I cannot tell you how excited I am. Samuel, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, totally my pleasure. Well, and it's so funny because we had brunch the other day and you were just a nonstop vault of, of information about the future, how it's affecting the medical device world and, and so many things. And I think um, people like us, you know, who, who are just kind of plowing ahead, our generation, we're sort of, I, it's like funny, I don't even know the correct questions to even ask somebody like you, but if you can just kind of describe a little bit about what you've been doing at Meta, um, just kind of describe the AI world and like what you guys were creating over there, if that's something that you can talk about. Uh, you know, I can, I can talk generally about it. Um, I, I think the thing that's important for me is that um, we're at sort of this inflection point because of a specific kind of technology that, that is really only possible now because of a couple of factors. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll go into that. One of those is, is having the amount of data that you need to make these machines really run. 
And the second thing is actually having the kind of compute power available, which we, we really have not had until fairly recently. Um, and, and I mean that in the broadest sense, not, not in a, any one specific company. I mean, just on the planet, we have not had this kind of compute power available. Um, and that's, that's these uh, sort of large language models or the uh, chat GPT uh, models that are out now. And the thing that I think is so remarkable about them is when you are talking to them, they have a much better sense of uh, the pattern matching. They understand, they seem to understand a lot more of what it is we're talking about. They do things like remember context um, and they're able to distill information and synthesize summaries and stuff like that. And that you know, relies on the fact that this data has actually been captured in some form that, that's consumable and that we've been finally able to spend the amount of compute cycles. And when I'm talking about compute, I'm talking about uh, computers that are really data centers, you know, like, you know, in, entire uh, campuses of buildings that you stick on the side of hydroelectric dams uh, on the Blue River, for example, because that's how much power and energy they compute. In fact, the kind of computers we're talking about um, are fairly specialized. Uh, they're sort of an accident of architecture that we even have these kinds of computers in the first place. So there's a lot of stuff going on under the hood. Um, but the thing I think that's important to remember is that this is an evolution. Like this, this started off uh, with us having the data uh, to be able to understand what people were really doing. And then from there, we're able to do these fancy computation things that let us let computers distill that and automate that in a way that we, we haven't been able to have before. Um, I, and, you know, the, the other thing that I think is super interesting is that with this ability, I think it's the thing, key thing that's different is that accessing the power of artificial intelligence and automation is now something everybody on the planet that has a computer can do. Uh, now, of course, there are people not uh, with the computer that, you know, we can talk about access and equity and all that kind of stuff. But if you have a computer, you can approach it. Anybody can approach it. You don't need a PhD. You don't need to have a degree uh, to go have these things actually help you do a job. Uh, and I think that's that's amazing. Like every interesting revolution in computing so far has started off with a very few people could do it. And then all of a sudden, everybody could do it. Now we all, you know, we carry these little supercomputers around and we take it for granted. But that's kind of where we are again. <clears throat> but yeah, I feel like our parents' generation and how they adapted to the internet, if they didn't figure it out or, or get on board with it, then they became sort of antiquated in society. I mean, my mom still doesn't really even know how to use an email situation and it's very frustrating. So I feel like our generation now needs to figure out how to adapt, learn, understand the technology of AI. How is Meta, what is Meta doing in terms of creating their AI? Is it looking different than ChatGPT? And I know that might sound like a very naive question, but like I like I said, I'm I don't even know the right questions to ask somebody like you. <laughs> so yeah, me. sure. Uh, look, I think um, every company has um, a focus in having AI provide a better experience for the customers. I mean, that's what, you know, companies are, are in the business of doing is providing experiences to customers and, you know, providing some economic value uh, in that transaction. You know, Meta is an interesting company, I think, because it um, its mission is to connect everybody using technology. So the work at Meta has a whole bunch of forms that are, are really around how can real people, not just, you know, computer geeks, but real people get connected using technology, whether that's through, uh, you know, devices like Ray-Ban Stories uh, or the Oculus Rift headsets um, or, um, you know, the stuff that we all have, you know, come to know and love on uh, the mobile app, WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook. 
So, uh, you know, it is really about powering those connections, but doing it in a way that um, increases um, really the, the amount of goodness uh, in having those connections. Uh, and, and I say it that way because I think it's really interesting that uh, there have been a number of sort of steps along the journey. Uh, a few years ago, uh, say four or five years ago, there were a lot of people uh, who were using AI for earlier forms of AI for things like facial recognition. Uh, and facial recognition can provide all sorts of interesting magic. Uh, you know, you might connect with somebody on the social network, you see a picture and the AI can help you understand who that is. And maybe it's somebody that you had forgotten, maybe it's one of your old vacation photos and it's just kind of magic when it all comes together. Uh, but there are pitfalls there too. And I think that's um, part of understanding how to use this technology, uh, both in ethical ways, but also in ways that really are just common sense good. Uh, and the problem with the facial recognition as a technology, for example, uh, is that the way it's produced is you take art in artificial intelligence, you train it on a lot of images of people, and then you help it understand like things about those people. And then as it takes those patterns of things it's seen in its training and it produces identification. So the thing that's super interesting, of course, is that then that, that facial recognition is only as good as the body of images it's seen, it's been trained on. Um, and so unless you're super careful about the body of images that it's seen on, um, you're gonna end up with bias in its abilities. And as it turned out uh, in the history of facial recognition so far, most training sets are um, predominantly from a majority white male and, and, and increasingly white female faces with hair types, with skin tones, with lighting, uh, with eye colors that um, are well-recognized when it's in that training set and work demonstrably less well on Asian faces uh, face of uh, African-American descent. Um, and so uh, you build in these inequities. And that's part of, I think, of the responsible use of technology. Uh, and AI just brings that to the fore. Um, now, I, the thing I really have to point out here, and I think I, I mentioned this at brunch the other day, these are not new problems. It turns out that most of the technologies that we sort of even take for granted at this point in our lives have some element of this problem. Um, for example, uh, pulse oximeters that are used in hospitals, right? So everybody gets it now. You go to the emergency room, they take your blood pressure, um, they, put, they put the little clip on your finger and what the finger is doing is it's measuring how much oxygen is your blood. That's what the you know, partial pressure of oxygen pulse oximeter, that's what those things do. And the way they work is they shine a laser on your skin and then they read the reflection and they can tell you know, not just how often you know, the blood moves through but by the color that it gets reflected off the laser, it can tell how much oxygen is in your blood uh, you know, fairly accurately. And this is super important. There are diseases, of course, like COVID um, that directly you know, you know, uh, harm our ability to have oxygen in the blood. There are procedures you do think in surgery, for example, uh, pulse ox is super important because it tells the anesthesiologist uh, that they have the right level of anesthesia running through your system. Well, it turns out that pulse oximeters, this is not widely known, um, but it is known in academic circles, pulse ox uh, instruments are calibrated for white skin. Uh, and in fact, they don't work as well on darker skin tones, and they work a little bit differently in different situations. And uh, so, yeah, you get a you get a misreading out of it with bigger error bars. Uh, but the problem is now we've built all these other foundations in medicine and uh, in science and research, in fact, that are built on that one fact that just sort of assume it's true. And now we've taken that bias, we've sort of magnified it throughout the system uh, because of the thing that happened before. Uh, now, you know, pulse ox. Uh, Devices have been around for 25, 30 years now, 
um, I believe, uh, don't quote me on the exact number, it's not my, my specific field of study, but the same ethical problems that we had when we're working with those kinds of instruments, we have in AI, and they're just writ a little bit larger because of the, the, the greater capabilities that we have uh, in the uses that we have for AI. Right, and that's so interesting because you use the word ethical, and then you also use the word bias. And I think, you know, the four of us, Zula is not here, we all work in the entertainment industry, and there's a lot of fear of, you know, um, inequities with AI and creating certain elements of content um, in the entertainment industry. And that's really interesting about the Pulse Ops. Yeah, you told me that at um, brunch, which I had no no idea. And how many people could that have affected in the world of, of the pandemic um, in, in African-American or Latino, or like you said, Asian descent uh, ethnicities. With regards to the future, I think the big question, obviously you're representing a, a brand, a technology that is all in on AI, but some of us who aren't aware of what the future holds have concerns. I will just straight out ask you, and I asked you this at brunch, should we be afraid of AI? Yeah. That was going to be my question. Like, should we be question. scared? That's a great question. Um, look, I think it's uh, incumbent on us to understand, uh, you know, any new technology um, and to, uh, to understand what the pitfalls are. Like we don't, uh, this has been the problem, I think, of, uh, of engineers and, and researchers and scientists, uh, you know, for a long time. Uh, any new technology can be misused, uh, but the, the degree to which a, a thing like AI can be misused, is it, it has real consequences in the world. It's not, you know, just uh, party tricks or, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, helping students, uh, you know, avoid writing their essay in high school anymore. Uh, so, I, you know, should we be afraid? I, I think... We should be afraid, but we should not be blindly afraid. Like we sh we should have these discussions about what does it really mean. Um, you know, for example, when you go to Chat GPT and you say, uh, you know, for example, write me a resume uh, based on this LinkedIn profile. Um, you know, is it going to do an equally good job on all of those resumes? Um, who is it putting out of work when we use the, the technology this way? Um, what kinds of things is it good at? What kinds of things are they not good at? Uh, right now, uh, I think. It's demonstrably good at a number of things that I would put in the category of, um, I said party tricks earlier, but I mean, sort of demo, like you can, you can demonstrate it, it looks powerful. The real question is, you know, what can we do that, that furthers the state of, of productivity and creating, you know, goodness and value for humans on the planet? And that means we're going to go try it in a thousand places. And in a thousand places, some of those things will be valuable. Some of those things will be dangerous. And some of those things will be party tricks. Um, and so like, I don't think we know where those things are going to fall in there, but I can guarantee some fraction of this usage will in fact fall into the dangerous category. Uh, and that is a reason for us all to be uh, educated and up to date on what the power of AI can be and what things like machine learning can do for us. Um, and to be thinking about what are those ethical questions that we have to answer when we <laughs> see stuff used in this way. I, I actually just used it myself the other day because I was writing <laughs> a resume for my son. My son plays soccer and I was trying to get him into the LA Galaxy camp uh, for the summer. And I started writing the resume and then I'm like, oh, what do I include in a resume? Like a soccer resume at nine years old? This is ridiculous. And I'm like, oh, I'll throw it into chat. And uh, 
it was the best resume I could have ever written in my life. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is amazing. So it just made my life easier. It just made it efficient. Um, and I didn't have to put in so much time and thought because it's a resume for my son. It's not that big of a deal. It's not replacing any job at that point, obviously. So I think I see the benefits of it right now, but I'm also a, a, a clothing designer as well. So that was a little bit scary. I talked to somebody that was designing shoes, actually my cousin, and he was using AI to help him design shoes. And the stuff that he was coming up with was it's still him it's still his his mind um but he was just saying that it just it just helps him you know it, it supports him he has ideas that he really couldn't do but ai is able to kind of partner with him in a sense so yeah, i see it amazing exactly. it's amazing I, yeah. I think you know that that's the essence of it like there are a lot of these uh really interesting creative jobs where uh, you know, design is a great one, whether you're designing shoes or, uh, you know, my daughter's in the architecture program at, at USC. Uh, and 90% and of the work involved in producing a design like that is, is actually pretty mechanical. Uh, you know, you have to find the right CAD program, you, you're drawing these shapes, you know, it has to meet these machine specs, you have to go figure out what machines your factory has, so you know, the right kinds of plans to produce. None of that really contributes to the creativity of the design of the shoe. Uh, and so if we can use a computer to automate uh, the 90% of grunt work that goes in, so a designer, someone with real creative talent can focus on the 10%, what they could only spend 10% of their time doing, now they can do 90% of their time doing, and the 10% the is now grunt work that's mostly handled by the computer. Hey, that's a great trade-off, right? That, that means that we get better shoes, we get more creative designs. I think for people in the, in the arts and entertainment business, um, the thing to think about is, you know, what parts of the job are really, um, you know, the the things, the tasks that you do, so you can do the creative things, so you can make the connections, so you can produce the art uh, that is super interesting. Now we've had an element of this in visual art for a long time. You know, you go back to places like the MIT Media Lab uh, and some of the, uh, you know, computer generated stuff. I mean, it was just toys at the time, but uh, you go forward, and, and the technology is a medium itself, and it opens up new opportunities. It is inevitable that a technology like this that broadly increases access and makes your life easier is going to move creativity. I think of it as sort of up the stack. Um, and the thing I think is kind of interesting, um, uh, uh, maybe you know people will find this comforting. This is happening in the world of software engineering as well as every other profession. Uh, so there are. it is possible today to go to ChatGPT and ask it to write you a program to go do something. And it will give you a 90% answer. And that means that something that it might have taken you four weeks of, of your own time to put together as a software engineer, you get 90% of that four weeks of effort just you know, spit out in a few seconds. Uh, and then you can go add your 10%. You can go add your, oh, this is close, but not exactly what I wanted. You can go and do that. And that means that you're really, you know, you really are almost 10 times as productive. I mean, we're starting to see companies like uh, Microsoft build this into their developer tools, uh, make those available. Uh, they have it through GitHub Copilot now. It's getting built into Visual Studio. Um, those are all software engineering terms, but I think it's interesting because it is happening quickly there, and I think it will happen to many other uh, kinds of knowledge work uh, that people do. Uh, and I think that's super interesting. That's, that goes back to the premise of, you know, computers are supposed to be an aid to us uh, it's supposed to save us grunt work. It's supposed to save us drudgery. Um, and it, you can draw parallels, right? Um, 
there were a lot of accountants very much put out uh, when uh, Lotus 123 and then Microsoft Excel became, you know, sort of the lingua franca of accounting uh, across the world. But the truth is, we were then able to go do finances with a tenth the effort that we were able to do, and we were able to attack financial and interesting problems that were never before possible on the planet. So it's, a, it's really, I, it, it looks new and different, but it is part of this wave of using computers and advancing the state of the art of human productivity. And that's the point to this stuff. Yeah, and I and, and Eric is a mom of two. So I look at it from the positive scale of now she gets more time with her kids, less grunt work. You know, she's a, a small business owner. Um, and in those cases, I see the, the benefit of it. However, the, you know, the 90% the, the grunt work went to someone as a job. So my question for you is, and it was really interesting, we had a, a very fascinating call with another, you know, her cousin, a, another one that uses AI in his product design. And he said his two girls, he's now looking for what is the future that they can have in terms of a career that won't end up ultimately being replaced by AI. And that feels like a real thing. It is a real thing. I mean, look, I grew up in Detroit in the 80s, right? Um, and we had exactly the same question. How many of our jobs are going to get replaced by robots in the factory floor? Um, you know, this is a thing that happens, and it has happened. Um, and the thing that has happened is when we get uh, technology that helps us at that level, that advances the state of the art, we have to um, be able to have people move higher up in the value uh, higher up in the stack. So yeah, we we might not be uh, milling uh, camshafts by hand anymore. Uh, we have robots to do that. Uh, but that means that we have more people that can concentrate on design, that can concentrate on style, uh, that can do integration, less people, you know, uh, you know, losing their fingers in the milling machine. Uh, and and that change is inevitable. Um, and I think we have to understand how to how to respond to that. Um, the other thing I think is super interesting is that as we use technology to replace mundane jobs, um, we need to be in a, in a world and have a policy and have, have the right uh, environment so that people can go and decide to retrain and to learn new things. And I think that is something that uh, gets back to the core values around education uh, and what do families value when it comes to education, the ability to learn, not so much the ability to take a test. Uh, you know, there's a lot of societal impact when it comes to that. So the question is, yeah, at, you know, also as a parent, you know, what what is it that we need to do to to have our kids be successful in that environment? Uh, and you know, I, I think it's interesting that it does come back to education and, and how much can we help people understand how to learn and how to learn effectively. That is interesting that you say that. Uh, how you know, students obviously then at a university, how do you regulate them using AI to do their 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 homework, their paperwork, their essays, instead of them doing it themselves. Yeah, exactly. That was my next question that she also said. You guys are reading my mind right now. We are AI. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. I think there's a couple of interesting things here for universities. One is that like the, the education environment it has to has to have transparency. Uh, so students are using tools in a certain way. Like the university has to understand that. Um, and they have to have the environment where that usage is not um, sort of, you can't just blindly deny it. Uh, you know, if you, if you go back 50 years ago, the debate in universities was, can you let students use calculators on calculus exams, uh, you know, which continued down into high schools and, and so forth. And you're sort of in the same spot. Uh, it's one thing to say, to try to deny that that technology exists and it shouldn't be part of the environment. 
but what is the value of teaching the things that can be so easily replaced by computers anyway? Let's in fact, you know, embrace the technology as best we can. Uh, let's use technology to try to uh, enforce the transparency. And in fact, this is what a lot of fairly savvy professors are doing today, which is they know students are using this technology to write things. So they also use the technology to tech it. Uh, it's, it can be sort of an arms race. You know, we've seen this with, you know, Turnitin and a lot of other online tools, uh, but it's really an extension of that. Uh, you have to embrace the tools at hand. Uh, it would be foolish to go to, um, you know, try to get a writing degree at Harvard and expect to write everything out in longhand. Uh, that's just not where we are uh, from a technological basis anymore. Uh, and, you know, it does mean that uh, you're gonna have to be creative and it'll probably be, it, it is absolutely work uh, to adapt every education environment to the new tools that we have. Uh, but it is also the onus on us as a society to have an education system that can do that. My, my, my concern with all of this is the teachers have to be willing and able to adapt. And like, when I think of the future of AI, I, I, I go right to my favorite movie, which was Terminator 2 and Skynet and all of these things. And um, we're in, in, in the entertainment industry specifically, there's this impending writer strike possibility and the reason we had actually a very interesting showrunner talk about the writer strike and what was on tap for that. And part of what they're frustrated by was the streamers and how streamers divvy out residuals to people that create content, writers, directors, producers, actors, right? But the interesting thing about that was the previous writer strike, to the best of my knowledge, because I am not a writer and I don't really understand that side of creating content, but they, when they negotiated the deal, they didn't understand the technology of the streamers, so they weren't really able to come to the table with proper knowledge in, regarding a negotiation. Same thing with AI. We don't know what restrictions to put into place with regards to abuse and and taking advantage of the system and like you you know with this with students in school uh you know kind of manipulating essays and and trying to maybe like do less work to cover and you know uh i don't know that so the teacher doesn't realize this yeah. how can we like know what to even i mean i remember when even meta or facebook when mark zuckerberg went in front of the legal system uh was it the supreme court i can't remember but like no one knew what to ask him because they didn't understand how facebook worked because they were all in their 60s 70s 80s yeah yeah it, it's like this this is a thing that it, again is ha has happened before and will happen again it's um this of all of the systems I think that we have to keep up with this stuff, it feels like the legal system is one of the slowest. Uh, and it de definitely, uh, you know, when it comes to intellectual property law, like we're a long way from understanding how it's gonna happen. Uh, you know, we've seen revolutions like this before. Uh, and I, you know, I use the word revolution advisedly, but anybody who lived through the scary days with Napster and, and record artist labels, you know, we thought the world was gonna end then too for artists. Uh, it didn't really work out that way. The world is different, uh, for sure, and the laws have had to change. Um, and that's, um, I don't want to say it's business as usual, but uh, every time we come across these new situations, we have new media, especially, um, you know, we, we have to have IP that will adapt uh, for it. And if we're not careful, um, you know, if we don't adapt correctly, we will adapt in, in ways that probably aren't the ways that we wanted to adapt as a society. Uh, whether that's, you know, changes to copyright law or, uh, you know, being unable to, uh, you know, provide safe environments online 
uh, and other places uh, for kids. Like we, we have to have those hard discussions and then we have to figure out how to get politicians to, to take action on it. And if I knew the answer to that, I probably wouldn't be just an engineer. <laughs> yeah, I, I could keep asking him questions. Sarah, did you wanna jump in on anything? Literally all three of my questions you guys like said, I was like, oh my God, obviously either I'm not very original because you guys are having the same thoughts or we're reading each other's minds. But I just, I, I worry, like, are we gonna, again, I was thinking Terminator, are we gonna have like the machines rise up against us one day? Is this gonna be backfiring? Um, are they gonna be obviously more intelligent than we are now? And aren't, aren't the computer systems now like learning on their own? Like, isn't that something that can possibly backfire against humanity? Um, I will say that um, most, uh, most of what we've seen, even though it looks like the computers are learning on their own and, and researchers use words like feedback and self-directed, um, the degree to which, you know, you could understand that is in, the, in their common understanding, it, it it's very limited. It's very limited. It, it's not conceivable that we're cl even close to anything like that at the moment. Um, you know, we barely have things that are able to tune themselves, you know, at, at things. We barely have AI models that are barely able to tune themselves in a way that would satisfy a kindergartner on the most elementary of topics. Never mind some of the really complicated stuff that we have. I think, uh, you know, at every step, we do have to pay attention to, um, you know, the possible misuses uh, that are there. And it's, uh, you know, it's really incumbent on researchers um, and on companies who are funding those researchers uh, to have a set of good ethical guidelines. Uh, and, and if you look around the industry right now, I'm, I'm actually pretty heartened. Um, uh, Google, Microsoft, Meta, um, Amazon, some of the other major players in AI uh, all have pretty robust ideas about what fairness and ethics should look like, driven by learnings over the last 20 years, uh, as well as driven by real advances. I think if you look at, uh, you know, on the government front, what the EU has done uh, to drive conversations around privacy and personal data ownership, uh, that has real bearing here, because that has bearing on how we could get to the data that ultimately is used to train these AIs, which will then determine what their capabilities are. So I think it's super interesting. Uh, this ties a little bit back to the licensing stuff we were just talking about, too. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, the ability of a thing like ChatGPT to give you answers uh, that are distilled wisdom, you know, if I, uh, if I wanted to figure out how to, you know, reboot my phone or, you know, or do a factory reset, I would, you know, I'd go out to I'd do a Google search, I'd go out to six or seven websites, eventually I'd find the website that would tell me how to do it for the particular model of phone that I had, and maybe it would work, and maybe I had to go to another website. And right now, you know, the model is such that it can it can scour those websites for you and just give you the synthesized answer. So your time to answer is a lot better. But the interesting thing is the way it got to synthesizing that answer is it went and looked at all seven of those websites. Well, you know, who controls the data that's on those websites? And what is the license for the data that was used to train that model? And we have a lot of interesting questions to get to. Um, to form the regulation for what will ultimately improve things. And the two things, you know, sort of I said at the top that will improve these models are access to better and more data. Uh, and we have a framework in intellectual property to think about how to control that. And then what does access to compute look like? Uh, and that is largely a corporate answer uh, that will, you know, we can regulate, but we need to pay attention to in the process as well. So no, I don't think there's any Skynet imminent. Um, I'll, I'll let you know the T2 is one of my favorite movies of all time as well. 
Uh, and then what is your thoughts on, um, we interviewed, uh, like she was saying, a showrunner on AI writing screenplays and like, are they going to be getting rid of the writer one day? Or do you think that that's. I think of it like, I think of, you know, we talked about the shoe designer, the architect, or even the software engineer. If you can get an AI that'll do 90% of the grunt work for you, uh, you know, take my outline, make a screenplay of it. And then you go and you, you spend your time drafting the outline. Well, you still have a screenwriter involved. It's still their ideas. It's still their creativity. You don't replace that part. You replace the part that's, um, you know, here's three or four different lighting options. Um, you know, I was talking to um, a, a friend of mine in the theater industry in uh, New York City uh, earlier this week, uh, and they have a really interesting idea about how to take um, a collective body of work um, for plays, not just Broadway, but reaching deeper into the stack, into even to either college and high school productions, looking at the way things are produced. Uh, so not even really the scripts themselves, so much as all of the parts of the production place, uh, and being able to to quantify that in a way where you can look for patterns. You know, okay, high schools put on basically the six, seven, or eight different dramatic plays all the time. Why do they do that? One, they're easy to license. Two, everybody knows them, and there's really common solutions for how to bring them to life on stage. Um, how is that encoded, and how can we increase? Uh, the ability of, you know, say, high school companies on very small budgets uh, to do more in different kinds of productions. Can we get productions from uh, BIPOC authors onto high school plays? Well, the way you do that is you improve the access. And one of the ways to do that is to take a lot of the confusion out on the IP and licensing. And another way to do that is make it much easier to produce. Uh, and if you have some help and automation that can pattern match across those things, uh, you can have this really great net effect uh, in a place you probably didn't expect to see it. Um, that again, depends on what is the data that we have? How did we quantify it? Uh, and then what kind of access can we provide people to do things on it as a new basis for creativity? You know, it's, it's not that um, the job of a screenwriter will be exactly the same as it is today. God, I hope not. Like it's the job of a screenwriter is nothing like what it was if you were a playwright and didn't have access to a word processor, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, but can we make it better? Can we advance the state of the art? Uh, and that's how we, I think, all have to approach each of these questions in each of these areas. Yeah, I, I, I mean, at this point, it's not going away. So at this, you know, I think at this juncture of our life, like you said, everything in life evolves and it, you're either in or you're or you become antiquated. And uh, it, it really it is interesting to get someone who's an expert in the field sort of break it down a little bit because our imaginations can go wild and we can think, you know, all kinds of things. And you see, you talked about the music industry, like I want to say it was The Weeknd or maybe it was Drake, their song, someone replicated a song and, and, and ran with it. So no doubt this is going to have some kind of impact in some way on probably every single industry. It's going to change the future. And I think you're right. Knowledge is power and arming yourself with information um, especially for the older generation, uh, I think it's just vastly, vastly important. So yeah, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I, I'll leave you with one final thought, I guess. Um, don't stop asking the questions. Um, you know, the, the impact to society is, is too important for us to believe that, you know, some guys in a white lab coat in a data center somewhere should make all the decisions about how this technology should be used. Uh, the power of this stuff is really up to us as a society to figure out how to use it and what we want out of it. Because uh, we can change the answers by asking for different things out of the technology. 
so please, uh, you know, continue. Keep asking those questions. Keep pushing people for good answers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was amazing. We really appreciate your time because you know, you get three women, three or four women together in a group and we start reading, you know, all the headlines about AI and Elon Musk, it's too late for us. And then, you know, yeah, you do you <laughs> like imploding Skynet crazy thoughts. So thank you for, you know, helping calm some of our fears down. <laughs> Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Samuel. Say hi to Billy for me. I will. <laughs> okay. That was great, guys. Thank you again. How interesting was that? Like crazy, right? Amazing. Yes. Loved everything he had to say. So interesting. He made me feel a little bit better, but I'm still scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's funny because he represents the technology side. So of course he's going to say it's a great thing. And of course he's going to support it because he's probably, you know, he, I met him and his, and his family and their family was so kind and welcoming to me. I met them at a USC game. So he's probably an ethical guy, but you know, I think this getting into the hands of people, like with anything, any industry, it can be manipulated, abused. And I think we asked really good questions and I thought he, he, he did a really good job at kind of like reassuring Skynet. Like that's literally what my friends and I talk about is like Skynet is like, are we creating, are we creating a new race where that will abolish us when, you know, when humanity versus the robots, like there's that scene in Terminator 2 where like, I forget the guy's name is John, John something um, in Terminator 2 where he like gets he gets dominated by a robot, right? So well, but think about think about how we all have to have electric cars eventually. Like they're getting rid of gas cars. So all of a sudden, if the robots were like, okay, all cars like drive off cliffs and crash now, or drive into oh the ocean, gosh. they <laughs> can do that. It's a computer. So that's why it's. I'm just like, if they're learning on their own, there could be evil computers, right? Or or I don't know, like my mind goes there, but maybe that's just because I'm not adjusting yet. And hopefully my fears will never be answered. Yeah. That would be very scary. Trying to the, the world, trying to take us down like that. Oh no. I mean, just imagine if the world took away our cell phones, like think about like if all of our cell phones just went blank, which could happen because, you know, there's hackers all over the world trying to break into our data and what devices and all of that. But could you imagine what would happen to us if all of our phones just stopped working? We wouldn't know how to drive anywhere because we, we use our ways, <laughs> you know? And like, we're such a disconnected society. We have social, uh, what, did, what did they call it? We have social- not Dependency. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, he was really interesting. No, he was so interesting. Thank you for getting such a great guest, Aaron. Um, it's, it's an interesting new world we're going to be living in. No, and I thought you asked a great question about how, you know, looks in terms of the entertainment industry, because I think that's a really big fear amongst listeners who are in that space. And uh, look, it's it's happening regardless, right? At this point, there's no real regulations or restrictions that we know of that may change. But if you're not up to adapting or, or getting flexible and, and seeing that things are changing, you're going to be left behind, like Erica's cousin said. So get on it, understand it, try to learn about it. We hope today's episode was insightful. Um, it was for me and a big thank you to Samuel Drucker for, for joining us and, and giving us such a generous amount of time 
to sort of explain a little bit about what he does. And that is your episode for today. I'm Erin Coscarelli. Erica Cedeno. Sarah Sanderson, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. And-